Mae West was one of the bad girls of Hollywood. She played risque roles. She wrote saucy scripts. One of her Broadway plays was raided by the police. They arrested the actress for corrupting the morals of youth. She was sentenced to 10 days in a New York jail. It was said of Mae West, She is the kind of girl who climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. Here are a few of the actress's actual quotes. I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. Marriage is a great institution, but I'm not ready for an institution yet. I only like two kinds of men, domestic and foreign. And finally, I've been in more laps than a napkin. (laughs) Mae West was a woman who became a star, quite frankly, by being a slut. And in today's chapters, we find the Mae West of the Bible. A biblical bad girl. A spiritual prostitute. In verse 5 of chapter 17, she's given the very unflattering, disturbing name, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The whore of Babylon is a false religious system that rises to prominence on the back of the Antichrist. Now understand, Satan has never ever had an original thought. Never. His desire is to steal worship from God. But he does so by mimicking God in his cast of characters. You see, God has a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. But so does Satan, the Antichrist. God sends the Holy Spirit to draw men to the Savior. Likewise, Satan sends the false prophet to lure men to worship the beast. God is preparing the church as a pure, spotless, virgin bride for His Son, Jesus. Whereas Satan's beast marries a polluted, compromised religious entity that the Bible calls a whore. One day, Satan will have his own church. Mae West entitled her autobiography, Goodness Has Nothing to Do With It. Well, that'll be true of this harlot. This church may carry the name of God. It may be called a church. It may have a 501c3 nonprofit status. It may even be seen as a charitable organization. She's a so-called church, supposedly a good thing. But notice in this chapter, she's holding a cup full of abomination and filthiness. Goodness has nothing to do with her. In the words of Mae West, the whore of Babylon will say to the world, Come up and see me sometime. And sadly, the world will accept her invitation. Chapter 17 begins. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. You remember those bowls? They were brimming with God's wrath and God's judgment. Came and said and talked with me saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now throughout the Bible, God always speaks of Himself as He, a male. And He speaks of His people as she, as female. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the husband, and Israel is His wife. In the New Testament, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride of Christ. 
You recall back in chapter 12, the woman with the reef of 12 stars on her head was God's people Israel. And as in a marriage, God expects fidelity and faithfulness from His people. We're to reserve our hearts and our lives and our bodies for God. This is the nature of true worship. Realize every human being is a worshiper at heart. I mean, you live for a reason, do you not? Either your own pleasure or some vice or perhaps for success or a cause or an activity or maybe even another person. We're channeling our affections and our ambitions in one primary direction. Whatever is at the end of that flow is the object of your worship. It's your functional God. In the Old Testament, Yahweh demanded Israel's loyalty. In the New Testament, Jesus expects us to reserve our hearts for Him. And when either Israel or the church strays and compromises its commitment to God, God interprets it as adultery or here as fornication. It's the betrayal of a spouse. You see, from God's perspective, spiritual compromise is equal to sexual infidelity. Both involve a sellout. You swap your integrity and your relationship with God for a convenient pleasure or for a momentary thrill, or in the case of this harlot, status and monetary gain. In Revelation 19, we're going to see the faithful bride of Christ at her marriage to the Lamb. As bowls of judgment are poured out on earth, the church loves and worships her Savior in heaven. You see, by this point, all the true believers have been raptured. I love Vance Havner's advice to churchgoers. He put it this way, Don't ever come to church without coming as though it was the first time, as though it could be the best time, and as though it might be the last time. Let's be ready. Here the true church is in heaven, while a bogus church is on earth. For unlike God's wife and Christ's bride, this harlot seduces the world. She's a faith community, but she believes in the wrong God. She believes in the beast. She sells her soul for a rod on that beast, and we'll see later where her beast-back ride takes her. And notice she sits on many waters. In Revelation 13, verse 1, as in other passages, the sea, or many waters, represents the vast expanse of lost humanity. You get this idea, it gets reiterated down in verse 15. Apparently, this harlot will have a global appeal. She'll morph into the world's religion. Here's the first church of the beast. This is a last day's church. This is the church after the real Christian church has been raptured. Did you know that current statistics show that the growth of Christianity in America has plateaued? Among 20-somethings, it's actually in a state of decline. But that doesn't mean that people today are becoming less religions. In fact, religion is on an upswing. This past week, I sat on an airplane next to a lady who described herself as, quote, a cafeteria Catholic. In other words, she picks and chooses aspects of her faith that suits her tastes. What she finds offensive, she leaves off her plate. And this is the growing trend among Christians in general. People are rejecting the restraints of Orthodox Christianity to concoct their own designer religion. In a 2007 Pew Research poll, 
57% of people who call themselves evangelical Christians agreed that there are many ways to heaven, not just Christianity. That means that 6 in 10 professing Christians now deny the exclusivity of Christ. Like a harlot, Christians today have sold out their Savior for the favors of this world. For the acceptance of this world. Realize when the true church gets raptured, there will be churches on earth that will continue normal operations. It'll be Sunday as usual in a lot of churches. Sadly, not everyone who professes Christ is a genuine Christian. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Profession alone doesn't guarantee possession. I think it'll be shocking how much of Christendom will be left behind after the true believers are raptured. The liberal theologians and the hypocritical church bureaucrats and the appeasing, compromised pastors will all be left behind. And once all of those narrow-minded fundamentalists who took the Bible literally are out of the way, it'll be easy for the new emergent leaders to justify further compromises of the fundamental truths of Christianity. Biblical Christianity will be gutted of its imperatives and it'll be blended with other religious ideas. You see, the whore of Babylon will be an all-roads-lead-to-God movement. This is the warning we get in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And this great harlot will be the chief perpetrator of deception and demonic doctrines. See, the whore of Babylon will be the ultimate triumph of tolerance and syncretism. Somehow, she'll lull pseudo-Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and New Agers, everyone into an ecumenical bed of belief. If the whore of Babylon has a church bus, you can bet it will sport one of those coexist bumper stickers. Recall in Jesus' letter, letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, he threatened to cast heretical believers who committed adultery into great tribulation unless they repent. Well, here he's done so. I believe apostate Christians of both Catholic and Protestant tradition will make up this awful harlot. Well, John tells us in verse 3, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 13 identifies this blasphemous beast as the Antichrist, a future Fuhrer, the satanic savior. This harlot rises to prominence on the back of this beast. You know, like the Christian churches in Germany, who early on actually supported Hitler and the Nazis, this church in, it, in, the, in the Great Tribulation will sell her soul for a ride on the beast. In the beginning, she'll supply the beast with religious sanction. And in return, he'll catapult her to worldly power and prestige. It's a marriage made in hell. Verse 4, the woman, who arrayed, who, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Notice, this harlot is no streetwalker. 
She's a high-priced call girl. She's all decked out. Her seductions and compromises have gained for her a privileged status. She's clearly identified, verse 5 reports, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now just as God, just as God has a headquarters on the earth, the city of Jerusalem, Satan likewise has a mission control. You know, people think that Satan's headquarters are in hell. As if today, he and his demons are sort of huddled in a corner, over in the flames, mapping out their strategies. Man, that couldn't be further from the truth. Hell is the last place that Satan wants to be. His headquarters are on earth. It's called Babylon. Genesis 11 identifies Babel as the first site, or the site of the first satanic coup d'etat. The first global revolt against God. You remember his name? Nimrod. His name means we will rebel. This man rallied mankind to rebel against God. He convinced them that even though God promised to never flood the earth again with water, God couldn't be trusted. Fear God. Trust Nimrod. That was his campaign slogan. And it worked. Believe it or not, at Babel, they built a waterproof tower in the middle of the desert. If God tried another flood, they'd be ready. Of course, along with this brazen rebellion, Nimrod created his own religion. He built a tower to heaven. Through their own efforts, mankind tried to ascend to God's place. Nimrod's followers would be as wise as God. He promised enlightenment and self-deification. And this is Satan's promise today. You can be your own God. We're all basically good. Look for the God within. Religion still tries to build a tower to heaven. Whether it's Judaism's Ten Commandments, or the Five Laws of Islam, or Buddhism's Four Noble Truths, or Smorgasbord of New Age manipulations, or Joseph Smith's Baloney from Maroney. Religion is all about erecting a way for man to climb above his own reach and get to God. And it all traces back to Babylon. Over the ages and across the globe, different religious theories and techniques have developed. But they're all a reflection of what started back in Babylon. How can man climb above his own reach and get to God? All religions are trying to build a tower to heaven. And this is why the whore of these last days is called the mother of harlots and of abominations. She's the mother of it all. She's the source. And in the end, all of her chicks will come home to roost. All the variants of Nimrod's lie will return to mama. Verse 6 is the telling passage. John writes, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Here is the creed of this religious harlot. Believe in anything but Jesus. Everything is shown tolerance except faith in Christ. You know, this may actually be the one prophecy in Revelation that's easiest to believe. For even today, Jesus is, is where the world takes offense, is he not? I mean, you could talk about God till you're blue in the face and people will applaud. But you just mention Jesus, just insert Jesus into the conversation. And they'll try to shut you up. 
Jesus is and will be the line of demarcation between real Christianity and this harlot's bogus brand. John continues in verse 6, And when I saw her, this mother of harlots, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And what follows is the angel's explanation. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now this is language that reverts back to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3. There we read, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. You remember the Antichrist will survive a deadly wound, a lethal wound. Perhaps it's a failed assassination attempt. He appears though as if he's dead, but he recovers miraculously. He was, but he is not, and yet he is. And I like what John adds about him in verse 8. And he'll go to perdition. Don't worry, he's headed for hellfire. Verse 9, here is the mind which, was, which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And in the writings of antiquity, the city on seven hills was always synonymous with the city of Rome. Notice verse 18 also identifies this city as that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, all of the emperors ruled from the capital of Rome. This harlot is a religious system based in Rome. Earlier we noted the connection between Rome and this beast. Daniel chapter 9, as well as other passages, inform us that the Antichrist will lead a revived Roman Empire. What's true of the beast is true of his government. In John's day, the Roman Empire dominated the world. Oh, it was. That's before it fractured into kingdoms and city-states. And for a time, it was not. Now today, we see a resurgence of nations that made up ancient Rome. Today, the European community is the Rome that yet is. And do you know the favorite symbol of the new European community? It's a woman... Riding on a beast. Here's a German phone card. That's yeah, kind of fuzzy, but you get the point. Here's the back of a two euro coin. Notice what the impression a woman on a beast. How about a Time magazine graphic for a united Europa? Or the sculpture that sits outside the European Parliament today? A woman on a beast. Or two European postage stamps. Or a German magazine cover, Der Spiegel, the woman on the beast. They all depict the image we find in Revelation chapter 17. The last day's harlot seems to make its home in Rome. And of course, what worldwide religious system is headquartered today in Rome? Well, the Roman Catholic Church. And this is the observation that's led many folks to connect this harlot 
with Roman Catholicism. What makes this even more provocative is that over the centuries, Roman Catholic religion has integrated many of the pagan and Babylonian practices into its tradition. The Pope's title, Pontiff Maximus, or High Priest, was a name taken directly from the Babylonian priesthood. Practices like the use of icons and the celibacy of priests and nuns and purgatory and Lent and holy water and the Mass and the veneration of Mary and salvation by sacrament. These can all be traced back to Babylonian paganism, not the Bible. And you wonder why I'm a protestant. Yet, do I believe the harlot in Revelation 17 is the Roman Catholic Church? No. The whore of Babylon will be much broader than any particular church or religion. It'll be the amalgamation of all religions, a global religion that's used by the Antichrist to seduce the world. Verse 10 tells us more. There are also seven kings. Not only are the seven heads seven hills, They also represent seven kings. And he says, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now, five world-spanning empires preceded the first century and John's writing of Revelation. The Egyptians, followed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks. There were five that had fallen at this point. The world empire that existed in John's day was Rome. That was the sixth. But there was one more world empire yet to come. There have been people who've tried to spread their reign across the world, but they failed. And yet one more remains yet to come. John writes, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. One day this Antichrist will unify a fractured world under the auspices of this new Rome. But his reign will be brief. Daniel 9 tells us it'll last but seven years. A drop in the bucket compared to these previous six empires. Verse 11 tells us, And the beast that was and is not and is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The seventh beast is this new Rome. The eighth is its leader, the Antichrist himself. He says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The Antichrist apparently will establish ten provinces. He'll carve up his kingdom among ten governors, you might say. He'll appoint subordinates to help him, but they won't reign long. I suggest we not waste any time looking at today's political landscape for this configuration. This will happen toward the end, and these kings won't last long, just a single hour. Verse 13 tells us more about them. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. I mean, these ten kings will drink the Kool-Aid, man. They'll sell their soul to the beast. And yet, talk about hitching your wagon to the wrong horse. These ten kings find themselves in, in a fearful position. Notice verse 14. For these will make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. The beast and his ten buddies are Jesus' foe at the battle of Armageddon. 
You remember God put down Nimrod in the first Babylonian revolt by confusing the languages and by dispersing the people. But he'll destroy the final Babel by gathering the nations together to the plain of Megiddo to make war with the Lamb. We'll read the play-by-play of that battle next week. And then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This harlot will cast a worldwide web. Verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Now, irony of all ironies. The beast and his buddies will turn on the harlot. They'll use her up, and then they'll spit her out. Notice this. Here's a pseudo-Christian church that has ceased being Christian for all practical purposes in order to appease the world and avoid persecution. And where does it get her? Naked, eaten, burned. The church is never stronger than when we stand up for truth. Now here's the possible progression. For the first half of this final seven years, the Antichrist is hailed as a man of peace. Jews and Arabs get along. The false prophet and the religious harlot spread his message. All roads lead to God. Everyone just coexist. But at the midpoint of this final seven years, the Antichrist reveals his true colors. He defiles the temple in Jerusalem and he claims to be God. This harlot, this church is no longer needed. From now on, the only religion allowed is the worship of the beast. And to secure that worship, he blackmails the world to worship him. To participate in his commercial system, you need a mark in your right hand or in your forehead. We talked about it in chapter 13, the number 666. Those who refuse either starve to death or get put to death. That's how it may flow. Verse 17. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, the only city that fit that description would have been Rome. Now, the Antichrist will rule the world. He'll establish a global government headquartered in a new Rome. But two Babylons helped bring him to power. Chapter 17 has spotlighted a religious Babylon. Chapter 18 focuses on a commercial Babylon. You see, a total rule requires the control of both religion and the economy. And that's what the Antichrist will do. Chapter 18 begins. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority And the earth was illuminated with His glory. And He cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Now remember, Babylon is Satan central. Babylon isn't just a city. Babylon is a system. 
It's a trap that the devil uses to deceive and manipulate. And here he entices the world through both religion and through riches, through the promise of prosperity. Babel is about both. Here we're told that it's Babylon's wealth that entices the world to worship at the altar of the Antichrist. The nations drink her spiritual fornication and become rich. You know, it's no surprise that the nations of the world will sell out principle for profit. Just give people more entitlements, new jobs, lower interest rates, peace and prosperity, and they'll overlook even a sinister agenda. The Antichrist will usher in an age of opulence, and the nations will sell their soul for a piece of the pie. Boy, I hope you're not the type of person who trades godliness for greed. How about you? Would you compromise spiritually to get ahead financially? Would you? It's alarming to me the concessions some Christians will make for one more lousy dollar. They don't know where to draw the line. Hey, we need to be sure, we need to make sure that we're free from the love of money. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. If forced to make that difficult choice, would you choose devotion to God or the luxuries of this world? And then verse 4 tells us, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. I mean, just as God called the righteous folks out of Sodom before judgment came down, here he warns the world of the pending destruction of Babylon. A gracious God offers the world a chance to repent of its materialism. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, God has scrutinized Babylon's books. He's noted her every transaction. He's delved into her business. Every workplace injustice he's noted. Every employee who has been abused. Every sweatshop. Every time the currency was manipulated for someone's financial advantage. God saw these things. Every time profit took precedent over people. God took note of it. And now he says, Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. Babylon bellies up to the bar, and God orders her a double shot of his righteous wrath. And then heaven adds, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. The rich of this world, who've made a fortune off the backs of neglected workers, beware! You'll be treated as you've been treated, as you've treated others. We've heard what heaven is saying, but here's what Babylon is thinking. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Wow! The commercial titans of the day are judged. They're judged in one day, suddenly and comprehensively. 
And they'll be utterly burned with fire. Could it be the commercial sinners of the world will get nuked? Notice verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment. Why are these kings standing at a distance from her? Perhaps they're afraid of the radiation fallout. They're saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. How can a huge metropolis be burned to a crisp in one hour? Could, take a, could be a cataclysmic blast. Well, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over the Warren Buffetts, the Donald Trumps. They'll start crying. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple silk and scarlet. Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil, and frankincense, wine, and oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and notice this, and bodies, and souls of men. Notice John says the world in the last days will be trading in the bodies and souls of men. I'm sure you know that today millions of people are trapped in some form of slavery. Slavery hasn't disappeared. Human trafficking is a modern day problem. We need to support those who are shining a light into this darkness. Verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you shall find them no more at all. And what a good reminder for us. That all our material stuff, man, that house that you love and that car that you drive and that antique furniture that you've spent years accumulating and even your baseball card collection, man, one day it's all going to burn. You're not going to take it with you. It's not going to last. I hope you're investing in those things that last forever. Well, the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. In one hour. Easy come, easy go. Every shipmaster... All who traveled by ships, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Babylon has fallen. Here a specific city seems to be in view. Is it Rome? Is it New York or London? Is it another of the world's leading economic centers? Or is it actually Babylon? You know, Saddam Hussein rebuilt a slither of ancient Babylon. The U.S. troops used it as a camp in the Iraqi war. Today, Babylon is a fledging tourist attraction. Perhaps one day, Babylon will be rebuilt. Don't count it out. With its strategic location and its oil reserves, it could rise again. And yet, whether Babylon is a city or whether it's a system, Babylon will be known not for its rise, but for its fall. 
What was predicted in chapter 14, verse 8, by the second angel who canvassed the globe, filling the air, speaking his message, is fulfilled here. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. But while the earth mourns, heaven celebrates. Notice heaven's attitude toward this commercial center. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. You see, the beast in in Babylon had collaborated. To buy or sell, you needed a mark. To get that mark, you had to bow. And now the Babylon that had persecuted God's people through commerce... Gets her retribution. She'll suffer what she's dished out. Verse 21. You know the point being. God is not just going to judge nations and governments. He's not just going to judge religious systems. But he's going to judge business and commerce. And commercial practices as well. Verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone. Like a great millstone. And threw it into the sea. A millstone was a symbol of ancient commerce and business. And yet here the millstone is thrown into the sea. In other words, God is tired of man's greed. Greed is not good. Greed is sin. Hey, if capitalism means an investment of funds to grow businesses and create jobs and provide goods and services for the betterment of society, then God is for it. But if capitalism means the rich exploiting workers to pad their own pockets at the expense of the poor, then God is against it. And He'll bury it at the bottom of the sea. And the angel said, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeteers shall not be heard in you anymore. Nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. In other words, Babylon will no longer be business as usual. World markets, corporations will all be interrupted by God's judgment. You know, I graduated uh, from Georgia State with a degree in business administration. And nobody ever told me any of this. They should have. If you're in business, this is an important chapter to pay attention to. Verse 23, For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. What an indictment here. The merchants of the world, big business mind you, is accused of the sin of sorcery. And let me ask you, when does an advertiser... Go beyond the boundaries of truthfulness and engage in willful manipulation, almost hypnotism. I mean, here is an ad for wrinkle removal. Give me a break. Give me a break. Where's the truthfulness in that ad? I mean, is it moral to advertise alcohol and never warn of addiction? Or use marketing? That targets children. 
And we all know that sex sells, but does that make it right? Don't be deceived. Those who use lust and lies and greed and covetousness, oh, you can't be happy. You're not using the right toothpaste. I mean, those who do those things and sell those, and manipulate and sell those products that way, they're as guilty as those who succumb to the temptations. One day, God is going to weigh in on all these questions and have His say in the evaluation of business practices. Not just religious practices, not just governmental practices, but business practices. Hey, don't tell God to mind His own business. For the world will discover that His authority extends to all business. And finally, verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. The Bible in view certainly could be Rome. The Roman Colosseum was the slaughterhouse of the martyrs. Rome's catacombs were her tombs. Ancient Rome was guilty of the blood of the saints. But in the last days, the whole world will fall into the sway of the beast in Babel and the whole world will share in its punishment. Which brings us now, finally, thankfully, to chapter 19. Jesus is coming back next week. That's right. Next Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel, we're going to study the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming back next week at Calvary Chapel. Don't you miss it. Don't miss next Sunday. And certainly, I hope, you don't miss Jesus. The answers are not in this world. Satisfaction, the love you're looking for, the meaning and purpose that you desire. You won't find it in business or in religion or in anything else in this world. You'll only find it in Jesus. I hope you bow your heart to Him. I hope you give your life and your time and your stuff and your money and everything else you've got. I hope you give it to Jesus because He is the King of the jungle.